Section 52 of Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 5, Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 52. Anne of Brittany and her Court. 1476-1514. By Catherine Charlotte. Anne was the daughter and heiress of the Duke of Brittany, and her suitors were many, all eager to win the fair land of Brittany with its hundred leagues of sea-coast and its sturdy people. Finally, she became the wife of Charles Eighth, King of France. The French had no idea of loosening their grasp on Anne's noble dowry, and it was made a condition of the marriage settlement that if Charles died without a son, she should never marry anyone except his successor. This successor was Louis Twelfth, and she became his wife. The Editor In the course of her double reign of twenty-two years, Anne initiated many changes in the social regime of the court. Not only was she a patroness of learning, but was herself one of the learned ladies of her day. She read the ancient Greek and Latin authors, and had a considerable acquaintance with modern languages. To eminent men of letters she gave a very gracious reception, and was fond of conversing with them. The poets of the period, poets certainly of no great fame, yet a pleiad of twinkling luminaries, precursor of one of brighter lights, found a patroness in the queen. Amongst them was Jean Marot, father of the more famous Clément, the youthful Clément also being her protégé, and his earlier productions read in the queen's apartment, while she and Sifi worked at their pointlets or tapestry. A number of young ladies of noble birth, whom at first she was accustomed to call Sifi, but afterwards gave them the title of Fiatonneur, or maids of honour, resided in the palace under the queen's protection. They were carefully trained and educated to become her and her daughter's companions. Some were orphans, but all were slenderly provided for. When opportunity offered, however, advantageously to marry her maids, she either added considerably to their own small fortune, or when none was forthcoming, generously gave one. Before the time of Madame Anne, the Duchess Queen, one might have well supposed that the Salic law not only rigidly excluded woman from the succession to the throne, but was as jealously intolerant of her presence at court, if court it could be called, where no queen presided, no ladies attended. The king, princes, courtiers, and nobility, generally, when not actually engaged in war, which was seldom, or occupied with public affairs, which meant chiefly devising new wars and new taxes, 
found the relaxation best suited to their tastes and habits in rough sports and games there was the mimic warfare of jousts and tournaments by which the ancient spirit of chivalry was supposed to be sustained there were the great hunts in the forests of chaumont fontainebleau saint germain or vincennes and when the day's exciting sport was ended there was the amply spread supper-table to repair to where jesting practical joking and boisterous mirth partly inspired by goblets of hippocras champagne or the potent old wines of the jurançon gave a keener zest to the viands killed in the chase conspicuous amongst these were the roebuck roasted whole and served with a sauce of balm mint and fennel recently imported into france with many other of the vegetable products of italy the highly flavoured haunch and the wild boar's head royal dishes all of them and substantial ones too on which only the great ones of the earth might then presume to feast italian cookery as yet scarcely satisfied the hearty appetites of these robust cavaliers whose pleasures and amusements were all external and who took but two meals a day to the calmer enjoyments of domestic life the men of this period and especially those of the upper ranks were utterly strangers but a change in manners began and as regards social life the step that may be considered as signalizing the passage from the middle ages to modern times and from ancient barbarism to civilization was taken when at the close of the fifteenth century anne of brittany the first queen consort of france who held a separate court desired the ministers of state and foreign ambassadors who attended to offer their congratulations on her marriage with louis the twelfth to bring their wives and daughters with them when next they paid their respects to her to the ladies themselves she sent her invitation or royal command to leave their gloomy feudal abodes where they were sometimes immured for years together and repair to the court of their sovereign lady at the palais de tonnelle or chateau de blois the moment was well chosen it was a festive occasion and the fair chatelains were by no means reluctant to obey the summons of their queen but the lords of those ladies and especially the more elderly ones murmured greatly at the attempted startling innovation hitherto they were accustomed to expend their revenues chiefly on themselves they must have gay court dresses picturesque hunting costumes horses and dogs and all the paraphernalia of the chase besides these there was the splendid panoply of war the burnished helmets the polished steel armour in which they were wont to encase themselves when attended each by a suite of four or five horsemen similarly equipped they went forth to fight their foes naturally then they were little disposed to incur any new outlay for wives and daughters that necessitated curtailment of their own by the younger courtiers 
Louis Twelfth was considered rather penurious, but in fact he was so unwilling to burden his people with taxes that beyond greatly embellishing his chateau of Amboise and Blois, for which he employed native artists, under the direction of the great architect Fra Giocondo, he refrained from gratifying any expensive tastes. But Anne dispersed with a more liberal hand, and kept up great state at her separate court of Blois and de Tournelle. She also dressed with great elegance and magnificence, and required the ladies who attended her to do likewise. "'What she has in her mind to do,' writes at this time the ambassador Contarini, "'she will certainly accomplish, whether it be by tears, smiles, or entreaties.' and quietly but firmly, wholly disregarding the opposition of the elderly nobles, she effected the revolution she had long desired in the social regime of the court. The younger nobility and the elite of the world of art and letters entered readily into her views, and the receptions in the queen's apartment soon became a centre of great attraction. There, following the Italian fashion, which Charles the Eighth and Louis the Twelfth, it appears, had both found much to their taste, sorbets and iced lemonade were served. Her banquets, too, for the Duchess Queen had her banquets as well as the King, were arranged with more order and with a special regard to what was due to the ladies. Each lady had now her cavalier, which had not always been the case. Each guest had also a separate plate, for Anne would not dip in another's dish, though it were even the king's. Doubtless, the forks, long in use in Italy, would soon have been introduced at her table, had the reforming queen been spared, but they had yet to wait a century before finding in France a patron in the Duc de Montancier. En attendant, Rose-water was handed round in silver basins. The senior nobles, however, made no scruple of strongly hinting to the king that he would do well in this and other matters to yield less readily to the queen's dominion. To this he replied, Some indulgence should be conceded to a woman who loves her husband and is solicitous both for his honour and her own. Yet sometimes he did resist her wishes, and by fables and parables, notably his favorite one, of the does which had lost their antlers because they desired to put themselves on an equality with the stags, showed her that it was not seemly that woman's will should always prevail over her husband's. This mild method of administering reproof to his Breton as he was accustomed to call his queen, seems to have often amused, if it did not always convince her. However, to the Breton queen, the merit undoubtedly belongs of setting the ladies of her court, in an age of lax morality, a much-needed example of virtuous conduct and conjugal fidelity, as well as of the useful employment of time and the cultivation of their minds. End of section 52. This recording is in the public domain.
Recording by The Story Girl.